welcome on a podcast too. <laughs> because I've been away, they're of course very clean now I'm back. I'm delighted. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Hi, welcome. They spend most of their time with me, so oh, now I'm back. There. That's wonderful. Um, Very close. If you've just joined us, welcome to the 13th episode of the South African Equestrian Federation's podcast from the horse's mouth. Busy discussing her wonderful dogs with me is Dr. Sue Dyson, internationally renowned lameness expert, veterinarian, orthopedic surgeon, I believe, Sue, um, wears many hats. Um, I think the first time I read about you, Sue, was you wrote a wonderful article about saddle fitting and the importance of saddles fitting the rider as well as the horse. And of course, Sue has just had a wonderful uh, documentary go live. It's the 24 behaviors of pain. Is it poor performance or is your horse trying to communicate a pain behavior with you? We will be posting a link in the comments to the website for those of you who are interested to go and have a look on this. Um, Sue will tell us, I think there's a course that you offer as well around it too, which is fantastic. And if you want to ask Sue any questions, which I would highly recommend. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Please do leave your comments in the chat, and I will interrupt Sue um, in between her invaluable insights to ask those questions for you. So, Sue, thank you. I believe you've just landed from Hungary, and you rushed home, said hello to your dogs, who are now trying to join the podcast, and I just want to say that they are welcome to join. Um, but thank you for making the time to speak to us about this trending. It's gone completely viral. It's so wonderful. Um, documentary of yours. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. South Africa is one of my favorite countries. Oh, well, you will, you're going to have to come back soon and speak to all of us in person. So, Sue, um, I would love to introduce you, but I think people would way rather hear it from you. Would you tell us a little bit about your background, both in equestrian and in veterinary? Well, I became an equine vet essentially because I was a rider. I had ridden from a very young age and had trained ponies and then horses and had the opportunity to ride for various dealers and various trainers and so had a huge background of horses and I was fortunate enough to train three horses to um, upper national level in either eventing and or show jumping and those three horses were real superstars and were subsequently sold and one became the junior European show jumping champion twice. That's incredible. And the other the other two went to the world championships and one of them went to the Olympics twice. So I've had the opportunity to ride some wonderful horses. They weren't always straightforward. So I learned quite a lot about differentiating between difficult behavior versus pain related behavior, even as a relatively young person. And then I went to vet school and I only went to vet school because I wanted to be a horse vet. And whilst I was at vet school, I was fortunate enough in two respects. First of all, I worked part-time during my vacations for Sheila Wilcox, who was an event rider, the first woman to ride in the European Championships. And through her and her selling activities, I met Jack Legoff and Bruce Davidson. Jack Legoff was then the American chef to keep of the eventing team. And Bruce Davidson was then the reigning world champion. And that was fortunate because after I graduated, I went to the United States. And whilst I was there, within the first week, I met Bruce Davidson and he invited me to come and ride his horses whilst I was oh there, <laughs> which was an amazing experience. Um, so, yes, um, I, I was blessed with my opportunities, I think. And 
I, I don't think that I could have done the job that I've done as a veterinarian had I not been a rider, yeah. because I've always understood horses from a rider's perspective. I have ridden many clients' horses and felt the difference in their way of moving um, before and after I've removed their pain using nerve blocks. And I've also seen changes in their behavior. And because I've had all that background, I think that's what's placed me in a unique position in terms of poor performance evaluation in horses. There's no doubt I could not have done this had I not been a rider and had the opportunity to ride genuinely non-lame horses, which I don't think many, lots of people have never done, and also to ride horses with genuine underlying pain-related problems and learning about how they react differently to you as a rider. I think that's something really interesting, I think, is coming from a rider's perspective and what you feel versus what you see. That's really... Yes, I, I think I've taught myself to see better having ridden clients' horses. So a client would say to me, this feels dreadful, and I would watch it, and I could see some things, but after riding them, I could appreciate so much more. And therefore, I was able to train my eye to see what I could feel. And now I'm very, very much better, I think, but it's still a continual learning process at watching horse rider combinations and then being able to say to the rider, I think you're feeling this, this and this. And they look at me somewhat surprised and say, yes, you're absolutely right. That's wonderful. That's I mean, what, a, what absolute value to bring to a rider's experience. Um, so what really prompted you to research, obviously, besides your experience with your difficult horses, what prompted you into specifically researching and resolving pain as related to poor performance or behavior? Well, I was intensely frustrated that many riders didn't recognize that their horse had problems until they'd been going on for months or even years. So they would buy a horse. They would say it's a five-year-old. It doesn't seem to want to canter on the left rein. And they would help help from their trainer. And the trainer would either say, well, it's the horse being difficult or the, you, you're not riding well enough. And a year down the line, it still doesn't want to canter on the left rein. And nobody has asked the question, why doesn't this horse want to canter on the left rein? And to me, it's absolutely straightforward. If you are training the horse appropriately and it's not in pain, it should progress. It should respond to simple cues to do easy things like canter correctly on the left rein. And uh, yes, it was just uh, having for years faced this situation when people were recognizing the problems too late. And then recognizing also that some people would be sure their horse had a problem, would take it to their own veterinarian, who would watch it trot up and down in, in hand and say, I can't see any lameness. They may or may not put it on the lunge and still say, I can't see any lameness. And then they would say, well, it must be behavioral or it must be a training related problem and send them back to their trainer. So they were no further forward. Or alternatively, they would say, you must do a full body bone scan on your horse, which might show us where there is increased bony activity, which may possibly reflect pain. So they'd spend a lot of money on a full body bone scan. And as a result of that, it would show up some hot spots. So they would x-ray those areas. Then they would treat those areas and the horse was still no better. So it was absolutely clear to me that the veterinary profession was also bad at recognizing pain related problems without there being obvious head nodding lameness in hand. So I felt that maybe 
um, this, that if we could teach people to recognize behavioral abnormalities that I thought went hand in hand with pain-related problems when horses were ridden, they may be able to, one, recognize problems earlier on in their horse, rather than blame the horse, or get a longer whip, or get longer spurs, or a stronger bit. And it might help trainers to recognize that indeed some of these problems are pain related and therefore they would get investigated earlier and the earlier they were investigated the more likely they were, were to be able to provide long-term resolution for the problems so it would hopefully be a win-win situation and i was absolutely convinced that if we did this research that our, my feelings about behavior would be verified i went into it obviously um with a group of other people. So I worked alongside a behavior specialist. And I think that they were a little bit less convinced and the statistician was a little bit less convinced about what the outcome would be. But I was sure that we would be able to show that the behavior of horses in pain was different to those of non-lame horses. Um, so uh, that's, we started off on the journey. Um, the first study was very successful, uh, verified all my feelings. And then we developed it further from there by asking the question, well, if we have a lame horse and we look at its behaviors ridden using this 24 behavior scale, um, and we had shown that the display of eight or more of these 24 behaviors was likely to reflect the presence of underlying pain. So we then asked the question, well, if we take away the pain temporarily using nerve blocks so that the horse can move pain-free, do the behaviors go away or are they substantially reduced in number? And indeed they were substantially reduced in number, showing absolutely clearly that they were pain related. Um, there was a causal relationship between the pain and those behaviors. Um, and it also demonstrated that those behaviors were not habitual. Many people seem to think that, oh, he always swishes his tail, that's normal for Fred. Fred always swishes his tail, it must be habit. Well, Fred, but we have to remember, and this is a very important thing, although we have identified 24 behaviours, the majority of which are at least 10 times more likely to be seen in a lame horse than a non-lame horse, each of those behaviours individually could have another explanation. That's great. So, for example, the horse may switch its tail when you apply a, a spur cue or it may put its ears back um, transitorily, which doesn't mean anything. So it is the total number of behaviors and those behaviors have to fulfill strict definitions. So just flicking the ear backwards and forwards doesn't count. The ears have to be back for five seconds or more. So it's the total number of behaviors, which is the crux. And we also have to bear in mind that this isn't a pain scale. It doesn't tell us about the degree of pain. It just tells us that the horse does have musculoskeletal pain. I think and it could sorry. sorry, go on. I was good, go just on. gonna say that horse riders themselves tend to be quite masochistic and a lot of them are riding with some pain or have ridden with pain themselves. And I found what was really interesting is I've had friends qualify to ride in Paralympics and but they can't actually grade pain on a threshold for humans even. Yeah. You know, so they, yeah. they can't use chronic pain as a as a special qualifier because there's no way for us to accurately measure it. So it's interesting you saying that we can't actually verify a threshold for horses. We can only mark the behaviors. 
Yes, and, and you can have um, two horses which have identical problems. For example, they may have an injury to the top of the suspensory ligament of both hind limbs, and they may show different abnormal behaviours, and the number of behaviours that they show will be different. So it's not these particular behaviours related to this particular painful condition. So every horse is an individual, and just like people, some people have higher pain thresholds than others. It's the same with horses. And if the horse is um, cantering around a cross-country course, um, it's happy, it enjoys doing that. It's much less likely to show those behaviours than if it's asked to go round and round and round again in an arena, which is boring and it is repetitive in its nature and therefore puts repetitive load on potentially painful structures. That's interesting. So the circumstances yeah. under which you look at the horse are going to influence what behaviours are or are not shown. I think I really enjoy the change of narrative from my horse is an arsehole when he's in the dressage arena, but he's lovely in the country, so nothing can be wrong. And Yes, that, that's a that's common it. scenario. Or they say, he's still jumping really well, he hates dressage, but he must be okay. Oh. And I say, well, he hates dressage because he's uncomfortable during dressage. He probably enjoys jumping, and assuming he's got reasonable ability, then uh, adrenaline and endorphins will be a, a release, which gives the horse a high as well. So there's every reason why the horse should continue to jump, assuming that it's not placed in an incorrect takeoff position time and time again, in which case it might start to say, well, this isn't so fun after all. Mm. Or if you've got front foot pain, um, it may be that um, it doesn't like jumping down drop fences, so it will start to stop. Uh, drop fences specifically. So there are many horses that continue to jump satisfactorily despite pain, but will perform poorly on the flat and will be labeled as difficult horses or uncooperative horses. Two, so let's, can we briefly discuss how comprehensive the study was? I was amazed to see how long it took, which I suppose is the hallmark of a good study. But will you tell us a little bit about your, your group and the hours yeah. that you spent? Well, one of our co-workers is Dr. Janine Berger. So Janine is Austrian-born. He trained as a rider, as a trainer in Austria, and then went to vet school and became a veterinarian and then went to the United States. And she is board certified in both veterinary behavior and veterinary welfare. And I fortuitously met her through a friend and I was chatting through with her the problems that I was encountering. And she said, well, let's start a project. We can do it together. And I said, yes, let's start. So they then made another trip to the United States in order to spend hours looking at video footage of normal and abnormal horses so that we could create a long list of different sorts of behaviors that we recognized in ridden horses. And then we had to, and this fit finished up being 117 different behaviours. 117? Um, yes, to begin with, to begin with. Okay. Because there were all sorts of variables. So you could have one ear forward and one ear back. So that would be one behaviour and both ears back would be another behaviour. Okay. And we also assigned scores to those behaviours. So both ears forward would be a zero and both ears back would be a three. So each behaviour was given a score of between zero and three. So then we applied this 117 behaviour ethogram to 
13 non-lame horses and 24 lame horses, of which we had good quality video footage of them doing a walk, trot, canter, 10 meter diameter circles in trot, um, and lots of transitions. And by comparing the lame and the non-lame horses, we were able to establish that there were 24 behaviors, the majority of which were 10 times or more likely to be seen in a lame horse versus a non-lame horse. So we selected those 24 behaviors, and then we reapplied this 24 behavior ethogram to um, the same group of non-lame horses and lame horses to determine whether or not there were significant differences. And indeed there were in that the average score for a non-lame horse was only two out of 24 with an upper value of six. Whereas the average score for a lame horse was nine with an upper score of 14. So it's clear to see that these are big differences. So the next phase was one which I mentioned a little bit before is comparing horses before and after the use of nerve blocks to take away their pain to see if their pain behaviors changed. And they had mean scores of about 11 out of 24 before we started and finished up with average scores of only three afterwards. So again, a substantial reduction. And then the next phase was to say, well, these studies were done by people that we had trained, particularly one of my former colleagues. Um, could this ethogram be applied by people who had no veterinary background and had had no training in its application? So we then used a group of 21 horses of which we had video footage before and after we had removed their pain using nerve blocks. And the 10 assessors were compared with a trained assessor. And they were told that they had to evaluate video footage of 42 horses. So they weren't told there were 21 horses each played twice. And 50% of them were, were, were displayed first after the pain had been removed, and 50% were displayed first before their pain had been removed. And if once you had graded a horse, you couldn't go back. And we showed that they could easily differentiate based on the ridden horse pain ethogram alone, the lame horses versus the non-lame horses, and their scores were very similar to that of the trained assessor. That's amazing. So that was, that was pretty good. Um, we did identify some behaviours which they found more difficult to interpret. So, for example, an intense stare or glazed expression in their eye, they, they found that challenging. And we've been able to demonstrate that with training, people improve in their ability to recognize these behaviors. So the next phase was to say, well, we've done this all using video footage. Can we apply it to the live horse? So out, out in, an, in an arena, can we see enough? And can a group of veterinarians apply this to uh, assess lame horses and non-lame non horses? So we had 20 volunteer horse rider combinations and they were asked to, they, were, they assumed that their horses were non-lame and that they were all capable of working and doing a dressage test. So they rode a purpose design dressage test of about eight and a half minutes, which was called, they didn't have to remember all that, so they were told what to do. And um, I scored the horses live and I also scored the horses retrospectively two months later based on video recordings, which were acquired from the same perspective 
from where I had been standing. And then we had a group of 10 veterinarians who'd all undergone preliminary training using video footage and me giving them a short lecture. And then they graded some horses based on video and I gave them feedback. So they came for the day to assess these horses. And it turned out that although they were all supposed to be non-lame horses, in fact, 16 showed low-grade lameness of some sort. Um, it was only perhaps visible under certain circumstances, for example, in circles on one rein. Um, Where that but, horse is just suddenly such a naughty horse for no reason. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the results were incredible in that the, the, the vets pretty much agreed with my scores. My score live matched my score on the video recordings. And the day was just amazing because the vets got so excited as they realized the power of the ethogram to help them identify a horse which had pain and to help them to be able to convince an owner that their horse had a problem which needed investigation. So that was an, an amazing day. That's really, really special. It's really fantastic also, Sue. I think that a tool has come out of this. You know, which I, I think um, academic writing is always wonderful and I'm a big supporter of it. Sometimes it's nice to have something quite tangible and meaningful for owners to take away and go, this is this is something for me that is just going to stand me in good stead with every horse that I work with and ride. Absolutely. And I think riders have found it empowering. Yes. Because some of them have been convinced their horses had a problem and they may have sought professional advice and they've been told, oh, no, we don't think your horse has got a problem. And then they said, well, now we've scored it and we've this horse scores nine out of 24 and they've persuaded vets to do better investigations. And it's been a huge relief to them because their trainer has told them it was them. It was the way they were riding the horse. And suddenly they're making a vet listen to them. They're making the trainer listen to them too. And some of these horses have been turned around in their performance because the underlying problems have been recognized and the relief for the owner and the fact that their, their feelings about the horse, which they were so convinced of, but were told were their imagination by a variety of different professionals, they just feel, as I say, so empowered by it um, and relieved. I really love these. Um, there, there was a quote from someone who I interviewed a while ago, and he said, Horses have galloped into cannon fire for us. It's really weird that they would be saying no to a puddle or a water tray or, you know, and it, the onus should be on us. And, um, and there was somebody else who I can't remember who it was who said, often a, a rider who's very in tune with their horse is actually picking up something that's subclinical before it's really manifesting. And we should really listen to them. And it's hard because sometimes you know, the, the paranoia can creep in. And I've been that rider as well. I've been the rider who's been very dismissive myself. I think we all have. And then I've been the rider who's been like, you see you see us book in every corner and you're just like, the, this, it's crippled. It's crippled, it's lame. It's, so it's, it's interesting. And I'd like to touch on, as you, you said earlier on, Sue, if we can talk about differentiating between pain behaviors and naughty behaviors, well, not naughty behaviors, let's say just training issues, which is what it is. Horses, horses are seldom jerks, despite what we would like to think. Um, yeah. Where do we find that line? Is it Does it lie in the number of identifiers? I, I think it does. Like one of the best horses that I trained, I bought extremely cheaply because I knew he reared. I was quite sure that he was a non-name horse. 
and I was sure that it was uh, a behavioral problem. I don't know what instigated the problem, but I was convinced that if I could overcome this rearing, he would be a very good horse. And indeed, he was an advanced event horse by the age of seven and went to the Olympics at the age of eight. Oh my and God, jumped, that's amazing. And jumped around. So that was pretty exciting. Um, uh, so I think that it is the number of behaviors. If the horse is showing it's rearing, it's spooking, um, it doesn't want to go forwards at times, um, it's swishing its tail and showing a variety of other factors, then it's got underlying pain. But if it only shows one behavior, such as rearing, then it's very likely that that has become a, an habitual evasion. Rearing is a very easy thing for a horse mm. to learn how to do. And horses learn how to do things more quickly than they forget. Yeah. We all do. <laughs> um, yes, but I think particularly with horses, mm. And, and, and they don't think rationally like we do either. Um, and so I think to answer your question, we have some horses which are genuinely difficult. So for example, the horse may be difficult to mount or it may buck when you first get on it, but then settles or it may rear. So those are just single behaviors. So they are unlikely to be related to ongoing pain, although they may have been instigated by pain. That's a if great a point, actually. So, so, so the horse can remember the pain, even if once the pain's gone, and then we have to no, always not, untrain no, it. No, I think I, I don't think it remembers the pain. It, it has learned how to react okay. and continues to react that way, in her habitual way. Whereas the pain-related behaviours, which are um, induced by pain and or continued pain, are immediately removed once we take away the uh, pain by nerve blocks. Okay. One exception will be, or two exceptions, will be the abnormal behaviors that some horses show when they're tacked up and or mounted. And those such as um, fidgeting, picking up a hind leg, picking up a front leg, turning around to bite at the girth, um, throwing the head up when the bridle's been put on, those sorts of things are not normal behaviors. Um, and it does take some time after the pain has been resolved. So we're talking about weeks until the abnormal behavior during tacking up or mounting re resolves. One other important, I think, point from a training perspective is that if a horse is, for example, learning a new, a new movement. So for example, it's learning half pass to the left and to the right. And a horse which has undergone progressive training, which is pain and is pain free, may misunderstand the rider's cues for the first week and may grasp it better in one direction than another. But it should improve progressively. It shouldn't be showing eight or more of the 24 behaviors. It may switch its tail. It may um, uh, be a little bit resistant. It may not show a completely regular rhythm because it's not quite sure what the cues mean, but with appropriate training and also reward of the horse, um, so you're positively reinforcing the horse when it does it well, um, then you should see progressive improvement over the next several weeks. And if you don't see progressive improvement, you have to say, well, why? Because if I've done the basics, 
any horse should be able to do a half pass. It's not, it's not like doing Passage or Piaf, which requires incredible collection. Any well-trained horse should be able to move sideways, bent in the direction of the movement. Well, um, so I, I like that you've used the phrase well-trained, because I do often think that we, it's, it's easy to fast-track, perhaps, you know, the progressive scale, and then go, we've done this twice. I don't understand, you know, why yeah. it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I, and I think we have to uh, also recognize that some riders are better than others. So some riders are much more in rhythm with the horse. They are not giving conflicting cues. They're not uh, got the accelerator on with the handbrake simultaneously. They have got good coordination between their hand cues and their leg cues, and their body movements are in synchrony with the horse. Whereas you have other riders who are less well in balance, the saddle may not fit them very well, so they find it more difficult to maintain their balance with the horse. The saddle may actually make them sit too much towards the cordial or the back of the saddle, so they're overloading the back of the saddle, which can contribute to discomfort. And the rider may also be sitting crookedly, uh, either because they have a physical problem themselves um, or because they're just not bodily aware of how their body is, is positioned. And those factors can all come into the equation that we have to consider whenever we put a rider on a horse. It's not just simply thinking about the horse. We have to think about the horse rider pack triad, as it were. Sue, so you've mentioned rearing, fidgeting as, as a couple of the behaviours. Would you mind briefly taking us through the 24 behaviours? We are obviously trying to direct people to your wonderful documentary. But okay. um, if you wouldn't mind. So moving the head repetitively up and down is one, or moving the head from side to side, not necessarily all the time, but episodically during a work period. And we generally advise that horses are watched working for between five and 10 minutes. Uh, and the ethogram or the checklist is applied during that period. And if it is an upper level horse, we need to see it go through its full range of movements because it may appear completely comfortable when performing working trot around the periphery of the arena. It may only be when it's asked to do canter pirouettes, for example, or one-time flying changes, that it shows its discomfort. So going back to the behaviors themselves, the ears being behind a vertical position for five seconds or more, um, the eye having an intense stare, or glazed expression for five seconds or more. The horse showing the white of its eye on a repeated basis. Uh, the horse opening its mouth with separation of the teeth for 10 seconds or more, or repeatedly opening the mouth and shutting it. Um, the tongue either lolling out all the time or popping in and out at the side or at the front. Um, the horse's head being behind a vertical position for more than 10 seconds for, for an angle which is 10 degrees or greater behind the vertical. Or the horse's head being in front of a vertical position for 10 seconds or more, for at least uh, for an angle of at least 30 degrees. Um, 
the horse being reluctant to establish canter or repeatedly striking off on the wrong leg or becoming disunited. Um, the horse moving crookedly, so when you watch behind, the hindquarters don't follow the tracks of the forelimbs. Uh, repeated tail swishing. Um, the horse stopping and refusing to go forwards or having to be verbally encouraged or kicked repeatedly to keep moving forward freely. The horse having an erratic rhythm, so going at a reasonable pace to begin with and then suddenly hurrying and then slowing down again. Or the horse having a rhythm which is much too slow, which looks like, a bit like a passage-like trot. And then um, stumbling more than once during the work period or having a repeated bilateral hind limb toe drag. And then finally, either bucking or rearing. To you, I'm listening to that. And you know, that's when you listen to it, you're going tick, 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 tick. <laughs> sure there's a lot of riders having that moment. Um, I'm very interested to hear you talk about a five to 10 minutes period and this uh, of observing the horse doing multiple movements and I'm particularly interested by that I, I suppose not to throw shade at any professionals by this idea that we take the horse in hand we trot it up and down the driveway once away from us once back and we go no the horse is fine so so how extensive before we we go into and I would like to discuss with you what are some diagnostic things but for, for you employing these 24 behaviors this this ethogram that you talk about What's how long should we you say five to ten minutes, but what behaviors do you want to see them on circles and straight lines on hard ground and soft ground, or is it just within yeah. their normal routine? Um, my, my routine assessment of any horse which I think might have a problem is that I will try and obtain as comprehensive a history from the owner as possible about the horse's performance and how it performs under various different circumstances. <laughs> and how it's responded to any treatments that it might have had from a physiotherapist, for example, or if the saddle fit has been changed. And then I will want to examine the horse clinically. So doing the examination at rest, um, looking at the horse's muscle development and muscle symmetry, looking at its posture at rest, and then systematically feeling the limbs for any heat, pain or swelling, and then manipulating the limbs to determine if there's normal range of movement of joints and if movement of the joints hurts or otherwise. I will then see the horse move in hand in straight lines, walk and trot. Um, I'll probably do flexion tests of the front and hind limbs. And then I want to see the horse on the lunge, starting on a soft surface, so that if the horse is explosive, it does its explosions on a soft surface. And I want to see the horse both trot and canter, because I think that there are some horses that trot comfortably but actually show pain-related gait abnormalities in canter. Uh, so I'm looking at the horse carefully on the lunge, in both trot and canter, on the soft surface on both the left and right reins. Then I'm going to move to a firm surface, which I want to be a surface with reasonable grip. I don't want it to be slippery concrete because no horse is going to trot in a comfortable way on slippery concrete. And then finally, I want to see the horse ridden. So that, in reality, is going to take me the best part of an hour to do. And yes, the horse has got to be warmed up a bit um, under saddle before I then start to properly assess it. 
and I'm looking at the way it's moving as well as applying the, the checklist or the ethogram. Thanks. That's that's quite a comprehensive thing, but I think that really is fair. And I loved you saying that a horse can be very comfortable in one pace and not in another. And it's it's easy to sometimes miss that. Um, what are some of the things that all horse owners can be doing to ensure that their horses are comfortable? And and I think like what are your regular go-tos? Like Ferrari obviously is is the one. Um but saddle I think is crucial. Absolutely crucial. Because you know if you've got uncomfortable shoes, it's not pleasant to walk and it's not pleasant to stand up for prolonged periods. I think saddle fit is something which has been historically underestimated with respect to its influence on horses' movement quality and behaviour. And we have to realise that horses change in their shape over time. So just because the saddle fitted six months ago doesn't mean it still fits now. So I think I cannot emphasise sufficiently the importance of good saddle fit for both the horse and the rider. Because if the saddle doesn't fit you properly, you won't be able to ride properly in balance and you are likely to get uncomfortable and compromise your own movement, which has a knock-on effect on the horse. I've got a and then I I've got a five-year-old daughter who wants me to carry her around a lot too, and this is music <laughs> to my ears. She's the worst live weight I've ever felt. So I feel very sorry for my horses. Sorry, carry on. Um, and I think we need to learn to look at horses and observe. I think my observation is that some owners are very pay careful attention to their horse and notice the slightest thing, a change in the horse's posture, a change in the horse's behavior when it moves to the mounting block, whereas others don't recognize anything at all. So I will examine the horse and I'll say, well, how long has that swelling on the fetlock been there? And they will look at me blankly. They look down at the fetlock. They look at me blankly again and they say, I hadn't realized it was there. Um, so owners are incredible in their variability in terms of their ability to recognize things. We did a, an, an unrelated study looking at horses being tacked up. So we gave owners um, a verbal questionnaire to begin with saying, first of all, does your horse behave normally when tacked up or mounted? Yes or no. And then for each phase of tacking up, we asked them a series of questions. So for putting the bridle on, does your horse stand still? Does it pick up a front leg? Does it put its head up when you want to put the bridle on? Does it repetitively mouth the bit? Does it place its ears back, et cetera, et cetera. And then we watch them check, tack the horse up. And the correlation between what the owner had remembered about the horse showing and what was actually seen was very poor. So the owners either didn't recognize or they didn't, hadn't thought about it at all, or they just had always assumed that that was normal for Fred and therefore it had kind of passed them by. But that shows that many owners are not good at observing. So I think we need to make people mm, more observant. I think in South so, Africa, we've got that unique element, Sue, that a lot of us use grooms to tack up. So a lot of horse riders in South Africa were very fortunate. It enables a lot of professional rider, professional business people to ride, rather. But they, the first time they can see their horse is with bandages on, tacked up at the mounting block. And that's for them where the behavior starts. Whereas, as you're saying, this behavior has started way before then. Yes, yes. 
But at the mounting block, the horse should walk up to the mounting block. It should stand still. It should stand still until you get on it and it shouldn't move off until you ask it to do so. Now, if the horse has not been properly trained, it may walk off before you ask it to do so, which has become habitual. But if the horse backs away from the, from, from the mounting block, that's probably an indication that something's not right. Um, and, we, and we demonstrated in our study that there were uh, two major factors associated with abnormal behavior during mounting, and that was either the horse was lame or it had an ill-fitting saddle. And the horse wow. was reacting in anticipation of the discomfort it was going to feel when it started to be ridden. That's astonishing. That's a really clear, clear line there. That, that's yeah. quite hard yeah. to ignore, I think. Um, sorry, Sue, yes? So, so I would say, once you start riding, um, it's so easy now to acquire video footage of horses. Mm -hmm. You've got great phones which have wonderful quality video recording facilities. And assuming you can zoom in so that you can see the horse full screen all the time, if you have the horse video recorded on a regular basis, you can go back and look at the horse's behaviours. Or you can video a friend and you can do it together. So it's a collaborative effort. So I think it's a bit like a car having an MOT. You can do your own MOT yeah. on the horse by monitoring its behaviours. And if the behaviours start to change, that's an indicator probably that something's not quite right. I think we're definitely all happier when we're pain-free. So I, that's, that's quite interesting how perhaps um, we've gotten away with this narrative around horses for so long and a testament to their good natures. Do you find that the, the attitude, and I'm particularly keen to speak to you because the FEI General Assembly is in South Africa for the first time ever this weekend. And with that, of course, comes the, the development of the Equine Ethics and Wellness uh, Council. Do you find that there's a change in attitude towards our equestrian athletes that we're getting this more, you know, the Two Hearts campaign was lovely, but that genuine empathy is, is becoming more of a vibe? I think it's being talked about a lot more, but I don't think we've got much action yet. And that's in part, I think, because too many people have been exposed to uncomfortable horses for so very long. And they maybe have never ridden a non-lame horse, so they don't know how a non-lame horse um, feels in terms of its quality of movement. And they wrote, learned to ride at a riding school when most of the horses were slightly uncomfortable and they all had their ears back and switched their tails and weren't very keen to go. So it's become accepted that that's the norm. And I think we have to reestablish what actually normal looks like. And I think the FEI have had this mantra of the happy horse for some considerable time, but they haven't really acted on it so far. And they have paid lip service to welfare. So, for example, um, in Grand Prix dressage, the tightness of the noseband has to be assessed by a steward before competition. But the steward places two fingers side by side on the side of the horse's cheek, where there is a natural depression, a concavity on the side of the horse's cheek. So even if the horse has got a really tight crank cavison noseband, which is putting huge pressure on the nasal bones, the side of the nasal bones, you can still put two fingers in. 
So there's a rule there, but the rule is being enforced in a, what I think is a stupid way. Because the only way, the only relevant places are on the front of the nose or under the back of the chin, where the nose band is creating pressure. So I think the FEI have, have got welfare on the radar now, and they've set up this committee, which hopefully will do some good, but there's still some huge issues out there. So they banned Rolker in dressage horses, and that is monitored by stewards um, in the warm-up area. And people do get stopped. But I was at Lyon Horse Show the week before last, big international horse show in, in, in France, and I was watching five-star and two-star horses warming up for show jumping, and you had them with really tight draw reins clearly being ridden in roll car. And there's no rule to restrict that in show jumping. So you've got dual standards across the sport, the different sports, and nobody's talking about show jumping horses. Um, I mean, yes, you have um, things like wrapping comes up, and there's been a big hoo-ha about that recently. But um, there's just so much more that I feel could be done and has to be done because we know what happened after Tokyo and the debacle in the modern pentathlon and the loss of riding within weeks from yes. that sport at the Olympic level. And we cannot underestimate the power of the people who want to say no. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely crucial. And it's been quite an eye-opener to me, really, looking at our documentary and the comments that have come up on YouTube. I was going to ask you about that. Even amongst the horse lovers, there are lots that are anti-horse sports. Now, I think some of their comments are said from a misguided perspective because they don't understand what goes on at higher level sports. And they say jumping must be bad, for example. I don't think jumping must be bad necessarily. And I can certainly say we have got evidence from data we have collected at competitions that we have a far higher level of horses in, which are uncomfortable at the grassroots level at competition than we do at five-star level. Yeah. Um, and I think if I was to say where are the major welfare issues, I would actually say it's at a much lower level than at the upper echelons of the sport. Yeah. High performance the people only are, are motivated to look after their horses and... Absolutely. I mean, that they are professional riders. They're earning their livings out of these horses. But the horses have to be well looked after. Now, that's not to say there still couldn't be some improvements, but I think on balance, the data that we have acquired using the ethogram during either competition warm-up or during the dressage phase of competitions themselves We've shown that the majority of horses are comfortable horses at the high levels, which I think um, uh, provides strong evidence in support of continued high-level competition. And as I say, it's at the lower levels that we see a more worrying picture. What would you like to? What changes would you like to see come about, basically, from this? Um, I would imagine that the ultimate thing would be to. I'm not saying we have to motivate people to be empathetic towards their horses, but I suppose if people can start to see that pain has a negative effect on performance, even if the, the outcome is removing the pain for the better performance, 
you know, that's going to motivate more and more people to well, remove I, that stumbling block, surely. I think so, because we've got really, really good evidence. So, for example, at five-star, three-day event level, horses which are assessed during the warm-up for dressage, if they display seven or more of the 24 behaviours, compared with horses that score less than seven, they have higher dressage penalties, they're more than twice as likely to be eliminated or retire cross-country, and if they do finish, they have lower finish places. So it's quite clear that there is a relationship okay. between performance and the presence of low-grade pain. And we've done the same thing at Grand Prix dressage level and the same thing at lower level eventing. And at each level, you can see very clearly that there is a, a substantial influence of, albeit low-grade pain, on performance. In the absence mm. of low-grade pain, these horses perform better. So it's a win-win situation if you, but for me, for riders, if they recognize the problem, we can potentially improve your horse and it's going to be more successful. And it may also be safer because if we can reduce Absolutely. the number of falls oh. for, or rider falling off because the horse has stopped, for example, that has to be a good thing. That's a fantastic approach. And and Sue, where does it where does it start? I, I often feel, for example, that dressage, I'm a dressage rider myself follows judges so I feel you know like what the judges reward is inadvertently what people start doing outside of the arena so when the Dutch were doing well Rolke had a swell in popularity then of course Villegra came and changed everything and who knows what's coming next where do you think we change this welfare narrative within the sport well I, I do feel we've got still got a major problem in the way in which we are training horses which is also related to how we're breeding the horses as well. And we still see far too many horses working with their head behind the vertical from a very low, very early stage in their training, which I think has deleterious consequences for the entire movement of the body and the development of the appropriate musculature, the development of the right neuromuscular pathways. So I think this tendency to workhorses with their head behind the vertical position, which is very, very common in every discipline that I watch at all levels, is a major deleterious factor. And there have been studies, not done by myself, that have shown that at upper level dressage, there is an increased tendency for horses with their heads slightly behind the vertical to be better marked than the horses with their heads in front of the yeah. vertical. Or they are, they may, they're not being penalized. The dressage rules are very clear for all disciplines that the front of the head must be in a vertical position or slightly in front of the vertical position. And that should count for every single movement. But it's clear the courses are doing very well despite their heads being behind the vertical position. So they are, I'm not saying they're being rewarded but they're not being penalized adequately. And I think that this is something that if the judges were more accurate in judging what they see in front of them, and not just judging the rider, maybe a notable rider, but if they're judging what they see in front of them accurately, then the trainers and the riders would have to adapt the way their horses are being worked in order to be able to achieve better marks. 
it's probably not going to make a huge difference with respect to the order in which people finish. Yes. But if you take, if, if you look at Grand Prix dressage now, you will see perhaps the first two or three may work with their head in a vertical position and all the rest will have their heads behind the vertical and the head will go further behind the vertical in passage and pirouettes and sometimes counter pirouettes as well. Um, so Piaf, Passage, they find more biomechanically difficult and their heads go further and further behind the vertical position. Um, and so if that was um, penalized more strongly, I think it would encourage better training. And I personally think that would probably enhance the longevity of many horses. Uh, absolutely. That would be really interesting to, to, link, to link that. Um, at grassroots level, how do we how do we incorporate this education? I mean, uh, trainers again. Then for me, lead grassroots level as well as high performance. Does it begin in the riding schools? And I really feel for riding school ponies. I learned to ride in a riding school, and I think that these are like the real fallen soldiers of the world. You know, the angels that give so much to us. And it's such as it's you know there, there's always this debate where people go well without riding schools without these, these horses that are not going to have the best of care, the whole system falls apart. Then we all have to give up horses. It always becomes a very extreme discussion. How do we, yeah. how do we tackle it at grassroots? I, I do think the riding school problem, it, situation is a problem because there have been various studies, including some from us, that have shown that a high proportion of riding school horses are uncomfortable. And my feeling is we can do something about that just by providing them with simple pain relief just by giving them some phenylbutazone, for example, which would make them feel better. My first pony was called Poppet, and Poppet was a darling. She went very slowly, and I see retrospectively, always had her ears back <laughs> and never had the picture of a happy pony, I don't think. But she was a gem, and she taught many children after me to ride because she went to the local riding school after I had um, got too enthusiastic for Poppet. Um, <laughs> But I th think back and think Poppet was probably always rather uncomfortable, which was why she was so slow. Um, but if we had provided her with some pain relief, she could have done a, 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 the similar job, but feeling better. And I just think the provision of pain relief is such a simple thing to do. And I think there's nothing wrong. If, if you or I have got, are uncomfortable, I certainly take an aspirin or diclofenic or whatever to make me feel that I can go and do whatever I want to do in a more comfortable way. And I feel we should have the same approach to the riding school horse too. I love that. Because the riding schools are really, really important, really important. And I think we have to support them. Um, but I just do think we can make the life of the horse more comfortable. And I think also giving those riding school horses turnout as much as possible. So they're moving around as much as possible and they have social interactions so that their whole lifestyle is, um, a more natural lifestyle is potentially beneficial as well. Absolutely. We have a, a tech question from one of our top dressage riders, Siobhan Records. She says, stable bandages. What is the value around stable bandages, first of all? Um, but particularly in the South African climate, we've had, we've had a, a post going around here talking about how careful we have to be with leg wraps and, and neoprene and things like that overheating the legs and actually causing issues where we're all trying desperately to help our horses. But specifically in South Africa, Sue, which is a very hot climate anyway, um, what stable bandages. 
can that overheating, is it actually beneficial for horses? Would it cause issues? I, I don't really see why it's beneficial unless your horse has a tendency to have repetitively filled limbs. And a normal horse shouldn't do that. And I would rather see the horse moving around much more, um, having turnout, um, so that it is as free as possible. I, I personally never used stable bandages in my own horses. Um, perhaps I did at one stage in my life after the cross-country phase of the three-day event, I did, and then I thought, well, actually, I'm masking any swelling that might develop. I might be better off leaving the bandages off so I could see what was happening. So I stopped bandaging after the cross-country phase of a three-day event. So I don't really see any real rationale for stable bandages unless your horse has recurrently filled limbs, and then stable bandages, I think, can be helpful. Um, can they be detrimental? Well, we see every year horses in which bandages have been applied too tightly um, and have created rub sores or even caused damaged tendons through pressure. And we've also seen horses which have got excessively hot underneath the bandages, and that's created other sores um, or um, has created other problems. So. Personally, I'm not a fan of stable bandages. I think they make the riders, uh, and again, as somebody who's who's been there, I think they make us feel a lot better. We feel like we're more involved. We're throwing the odds in our favour, and um, yeah, I think so. I, I would it just I would the say just look at the legs. Yes, look at the legs, mm. feel the legs, make sure you know how your horse's legs feel on a daily basis, so that you pick up the differences, but also be aware that horses have a remarkable ability to control the temperature of their legs and they can do so differently in the right and the left leg. So just because the right leg feels hot doesn't mean the right leg has a problem. Um, it will fluctuate during the day um, and it could be cold now and in two hours time it may be raging hot and then it can be cold again two hours later. So you needn't worry about that but it's the, the size of the tendon and ligaments and any peritendinous Welling that is the most important features to be uh, paying attention to. Um, as an event rider, I'm interested to hear the one, the one old-fashioned, um, you know, treatment that does seem to have any, any kind of uh, value is icing. What are your feelings on icing legs? Uh, I think that icing is a is a brilliant way of reducing any inflammation, and I think that if a horse has done a long cross-country course, then I know that, for example, its suspensory ligaments are going to feel sort of palpation the following day. And anything that we can do that's going to make them feel better is good. But you have to be careful with ice, that ice isn't applied directly to the limbs. Ice in a slurry of water is fine. Ice applied outside a bandage is fine. But direct ice on legs has the potential on a prolonged basis to create burns to the skin, uh, cold burns, that is. So you just have to be a little bit careful. But cold water is a principle, I think, has certainly has a place in management. Um, I can hear you. I can hear you leaning towards the, but why is there inflammation? And now that's going to be the question I'm going to ask myself all the time. Yes, it's inflamed. Why? But um, one more one more question. Um, what are the long-term effects of joint treatments, injectables, but especially cortisone? 
but maybe if you're happy to, we could touch on what the options are. Is cortisone a long-term solution? Well, first of all, I have to say, why are you treating the joint? Because I don't believe that treatment of joints prevents problems. I think you should be treating a joint if you know that joint is a source of pain causing lameness. And then you will need to be managing that horse on a repeated basis. And we have a number of different therapeutic options to inject into joints, one of which is cortisone. Um, we have different preparations of corticosteroids. Some are shorter acting, some are longer acting, some are more potent than others. So if you are going to be using corticosteroids on a more than once basis, you have to be aware of potential adverse effects as well as the beneficial effects. Corticosteroids are one of the most potent anti-inflammatory drugs that we have available to us. But if they're given too frequently, they have the potential to have negative influences on the articular cartilage, which is part of the joint. Um, and some corticosteroids are worse at that than others. So triamcinolone would be the best and methylprednisolone acetate would probably be the worst. Um, we have other treatment options. We have hyaluronic acid, which is a normal constituent of synovial fluid. The amount that's produced in an inflamed joint is reduced and its quality is reduced by putting in hyaluronic acid from outside, you can improve the joint environment. And then one of the more modern treatments is to use stem cells. And there are now commercially available um, stem cell products that can be directly injected into joints, which probably, if you use the right product, can have a quite long-lasting effect without the deleterious consequences of corticosteroids. And there are all sorts of other drugs. If you look at the availability, there are all sorts of other drugs, which are some of which have good scientific validity <laughs> and others which don't. But I would still be saying this treatment, this kind of practice of um, we need to treat the joints. It's four months since the joints are treated. Medicaid, yes. Uh, why? Why? Is there any indication that that is of any benefit to the horse unless that joint has an underlying problem? And I would say no. If the horse we know has a problem, then we have to determine what is the optimal interval between treatments for that specific joint. But to be thinking, oh, it's time that we medicated the coffin joints, the fetlock joints and the stifles and the hocks, to me is ridiculous. And injecting joints is not a non-invasive procedure and it is not without risk um, to the horse because there's always, whenever you stick a needle into a joint, the potential of introducing infection, which can have devastating consequences. Um, Absolutely. So I think we need to be careful when using joint injections. I, I, I was laughing because your, your, your mouth was saying they are good treatments, but your eyes said something else, Sue. I could see, <laughs> I could see you going, oh, I have to say this. But um, last, one of the last questions, how effective are oral supplements for people looking to help their horses? There are countless oral supplements on the market. Um, which are a combination of things like chondroitin sulfate, glucose aminoglycan polysulfates, um, fish oils, all sorts of things. The packaging labeling is not very transparent in terms of the proportions of each present. And we know the bioavailability of these products uh, once 
eaten is small. So the amount that actually gets through into the bloodstream is small. There are very few good studies which have shown any beneficial effects whatsoever. So it's again something that makes us feel good, but doesn't necessarily achieve something positive for the horse. Um, there are a couple of commercial products that have undergone reasonably rigorous testing, but the vast majority haven't, and they don't need to get a product license. It's not like a yes. drug that needs to get a product license in order to be sold. These don't have to get any form of product license. Um, and so they can use anything and claim efficacy. We also true. We um we interviewed an FEI vet about doping, and I was fascinated here that you can use the label FEI FEI safe. I think you know without actually knowing if it's if there's no test. You know, so people have to be incredibly careful now with doping as well. Um, around that, besides saddle fitting and good training. That's that's or bad training rather that could be negatively affecting horses. What are like? Is it? This is a bit of a loaded question, but what are the top three pathologies you see in unhappy horses? I don't think we can ignore the rider at lower levels, particularly um, in terms of rider size, which I refer to both height, shape and weight. Um, the population is getting bigger and we're not necessarily finding the right horses and the right saddle to accommodate those larger riders on particular horses. So that I think is an issue. It's not an issue at the upper levels of competition, but it's certainly an issue lower down. Um, I think that there has become an increasing trend for horses to do more and more and more work in arenas. Um, and so they are more susceptible to repetitive strain injuries. And the surface maintenance of those arenas is not necessarily good. Uh, and the horses are not doing enough work on a variety of different footings so that they may then be going out and competing on firm grass, but they've been training on deep sand and their bodies are not properly adjusted to be able to work on a variety of different surfaces. And then I think that horses are meant to move around all the time and they don't do enough of that. Having a horse in a stable for prolonged periods is not physiologically normal for the horse. And the more a horse can move around, the better. And yes, they may be at risk of injury out in the field, but if they're being turned out every day, then that becomes part of their routine and they're much less likely to do something stupid and injure themselves than if they are only episodically turned out. So I think that there are various management practices that we have to think about. And we have to think that every horse, you, you have a dressage horse, a dressage horse needs to see the world. It needs to go out. <laughs> have have it, it needs to do some pole work uh, and even do some little jumps. Dressage riders <laughs> need to see the world, Sue. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so I think for both from a mental and a physical point of view that um, these horses have got, got to do more and see more. Mm -hmm. 
And if we don't, then we run into potential problems. And the problem is that these horses are so stoical. They put up with so much. Absolutely. They're their own worst enemy. Totally. I said to someone the other day, if they just lay down, like donkeys, if they just were like, no, I'm absolutely no, people would be motivated a little bit more perhaps to to investigate it. Um, I read a a great, I think when it was, it was probably years ago now, saying that the soundest horses in the FEI were actually the event horses. And I, don't, I can't remember what the markers were for it, if it was over a career or, you know, how, how they were grading it. But the, the gist of the article came down to that they worked on multiple surfaces and also that they conditioned their horses' bodies well. So doing multiple disciplines, to your point. And I've always said, like, it would be interesting, like, you know, maybe polo riders could learn a bit about conditioning their horses from showing riders who could learn a bit about riding forward from event riders who could learn about suppling horses from dressage you know like there's so much to learn within equestrian sport from one another but we need to stop staying in the silos yeah there has to be cross fertilization Mm. and one of the other things that we have to avoid is obese horses Mm. i think um was it the showing was it the showing word that triggered you there sue well also (laughs) in in dressage we see too many fat dressage horses um, and that predisposes to all sorts of musculoskeletal problems mm-hmm. because they're carrying too much load on their limbs because they're too heavy. Totally. Um, and they're more predisposed to metabolic syndrome, to laminitis. Uh, they change in their enzyme pathways, which make them more susceptible to joint disease. It's, it, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So keeping horses lean, which the majority of event horses are, I think is very beneficial. That's- that's really, really great to hear. Sue, if anybody is looking for more information on this or to do one of your courses, can they go to 24horsebehaviors.org? Is that the correct site? Yes, that's the correct site. Fantastic. Um, uh, so there, there is further information. There are some scientific papers there. There are some articles that I've written since the documentary came out. There are links to the course which we developed, which is a 12-part course um, marketed by Equitopia, which is a, an American charitable organization. So yes, that, that's the website for the further information. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. This was really such a wonderful, you've been so generous with your time and engaging with us. We really appreciate it. I have one last question for you and you don't have to say yes, but can we see your dog? It has been bumping oh. the table the entire time. <laughs> well, here we have, there are two of them. So here we have Lola. Oh, hello, Lola. Look at her. She's so happy. To, you're, you're, you're now famous in South Africa as well. Okay. And now uh, we have Arno, who is the young one. <laughs> this is Arno. Hello, Arno. We will, we will, we will stop keeping you from your dogs. And um, I hope you have a lovely time. You said you were attending the U.S. National Practitioners. The American Association of Equine Practitioners Conferences, yes, where I'm next talking about the pain work and competition horses. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Sue. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, who joined us tonight. Um, This was a wonderful uh, episode um, from Dr. Sue Dyson, international lameness expert, on the 24 pain behaviors in your horse.
that are potentially affecting your performance, uh, the website there is www.24horsebehaviors.org for those of you who are interested. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we will see you next week, Wednesday at 7 o'clock.